Hello and welcome to another episode of What's Normal with Gabriel Sanders. Hello, I am Gabriel Sanders, and this episode is titled Normalizing the Totally Abnormal Experiences of Having a Baby. And you might notice that I'm talking at a little lower level than usual because my whole family is asleep because it's midnight. The holidays meant my kids were off from school, which meant they were home, which meant my wife Carrie couldn't work from home, which meant I didn't have time to do my show for a week or so, but it's all good, right? I'm here, we're surviving. Supposedly, I've got a gig lined up in New York starting at the end of January, and that's if it doesn't get pushed again or canceled. I've been out of work for almost exactly a year, Due to COVID, honestly, I'm I'm pretty much also done with Florida. I went to GTFO. Traveling sucks when you have a family. Traveling sucks now. But if you have to travel for work like me, you do need a good security camera to either keep an eye on your house or for the purpose of this episode to check in on your child or your children. That's what I do. Let's say you're out of the house and you have a babysitter over or a family member over, and you want to see that bedtime went well, or maybe your spouse is home with the kids and you're out, and you all have a nighttime tradition that you only do together. But now you're away. Well, the Motorola Connect 40 baby monitor will solve all of your problems. This is a Wi-Fi connected app controlled security camera, which has all of the intuitive Safety features like motion and temperature alerts, two-way talking, and this is amazing. Dedicated parenting support on the Hubble app. I have the link up in the description page of the episode. Use the promo code NEWBABY, N-E-W-B-A-B-Y, NEWBABY, and get 10% off of the purchase of the Motorola Connect 40 baby monitor. So that's NEWBABY to get 10% off of that. Check that out. It's a pretty cool device. My next guest is Cheryl Kindred, and what better way to end this year than to talk to someone who specializes in childbirth education, nurturing the new parents? We can all use some support in nurturing, right? What a year! I'm not the type of person who gives away their old dog to get a puppy, but honestly, aren't we all waiting for this year to just die so we can birth the new year? Sure, a lot of problems won't go away. But it was the whole year, the whole year just flat out sucked. So let's welcome 2021 with an open mind. But don't try too hard. Go slow. Be gentle with the new year. Be gentle with yourself. Where you're all going to be new parents to the new year. So this episode, normalizing the totally abnormal experiences of having a baby, it's a very important episode. It's a very important episode. Cheryl Kindred is a newborn care specialist, gentle sleep trainer, and former postpartum and birth doula. She has helped hundreds of adults with the transition to parenthood, with the importance of sleep of new parents and babies, and essentially assisting the new parents with the totally abnormal experience of having a baby, and so much more. We also get into the disparities of maternity and birthing care with minorities and those in rural communities, which is still an ongoing major issue, and it's just ridiculous that it's still an issue in the 21st century in America. Also, normalizing how we refer to the private 
body parts and not calling out body parts silly names, and also the importance of consent. This is a very important episode, and Cheryl was very generous with her valuable information. If you're a parent or parent to be or plan to be in some way, I hope you find great value in our talk. Even if you're not a parent, this was still a very cool, enjoyable, and informative talk that I hope you enjoy. And thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Cheryl Kindred. Good morning, Gabriel Sanders. <laughs> thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming on to my show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, where are you right now? I'm in a small town in southern Maine. Oh, so yeah. this is not on vacation. You're working. I'm working. Yeah. So you can. I know what you do, but if you could tell the listeners what you do. Yeah. So I have done a lot of things, but currently my focus is on newborn care. I'm a newborn care specialist and a gentle sleep trainer. So I focus. On working with families that are looking for support and help, I'm able to incorporate my background as a postpartum doula and birth doula, and my own experience to be able to provide, I think, really well-rounded, comprehensive support to new families. So it's cool. That is really awesome. And you want a coffee break? Let's do a coffee break. <laughs> I will have a coffee break all day. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I just had double espresso from Starbucks. I'm having more coffee, and Carrie's like, "What are you doing? You just had espresso. It wasn't enough." I'm jealous. I I need more espresso. There's <laughs> a Starbucks is like 45 minutes from here. I have so made my own. I what I do is I I mix regular coffee with espresso, and I just add as much espresso as I want to. Mm-hmm. So. You mentioned all that, and that's amazing work. You work with new moms, new families, with babies, and you keep mentioning this word that even, even in the group that I run, the New Dads Place group, the support group for dads on Facebook, which has over twenty thousand dad members, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And even when I've talked to OBs, women who work in the hospital, who work in the prenatal ward uh, or children's ward, they never heard of the term doula. Yeah, you know, it's getting more and more common. More people know what a doula is, but a lot of people don't quite understand. So a doula is a support professional who meets people where they're at and provides support for transition that they're experiencing. That support can be information, it can be educational, and it can be very practical. So a lot of birth doulas provide labor support, meaning that they're with the family through the childbearing experience, helping them navigate what to expect, when to go to the hospital, when to call the midwife, um, what to do if labor stops, but then starts, but then what do you do? <laughs> that whole panic yeah. um, and helps people to have a more comfortable more family-centered experience. Doulas also provide support through many other life transitions. The other primary one tends to be through the postpartum period of time. Mm -hmm. So helping them bridge from person to parent, from couple to family. And that support can look like very practical, how to care for a baby. A lot of people have really not ever held a newborn until their own baby is being handed to them. Same with me. 
Right. And, yeah. and I think same for most dads and yeah. same for most moms, but I would say even more so for dads because of kind of the gender stereotype of babies are for women, you know, and helping to develop confidence as a parent, helping somebody to feel proficient with their baby um, and helping the whole recovery process is really what a postpartum doula does. So newborn care specialist really focuses on the baby because I have education and experience in both of those. I'm able to combine those to provide really kind of holistic whole family care, which I really love doing. You have three children, am I correct? Two boys and a girl. Pretty amazing. Yep. They're amazing kids. Do you decide to get into this field of work before you had your first child or when you're you're between the first and second, the second, and third children when you're already a mom? So most people do get into these fields after their own experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm the outlier. I started doing this well before I had my own children. I always knew that I wanted to work in some way with children and with families. I really thought I would work with women, maybe in women's healthcare, which I've done a lot of, but being able to provide support kind of to the whole family has been wonderful. And I love that my background started there before having my own children. I was able to come into this profession with a really blank slate rather than my own experience being the framework in which I viewed my work. I was able to just view my work as about the family I was working for and with individually. And I think that's a really nice perspective to have. It is. You already had this experience. You already started getting into this field of work, being a doula and, and, and working with new moms and new parents, new dads as well. After your first child with this experience or even after your second child, did you have a doula as well? Um, so I have had a doula myself, mm -hmm. both in um, the birth process to some extent and in the postpartum process to some extent. I think the support is still necessary, even yeah. if you have maybe not as much of a need for the education, the practical support, and just the kind of emotional support from somebody who you don't have to feel bad about them being called away from their own family or a friend giving too much of themselves. And I, I felt really balanced having that. You're not a parent. You're not a friend. You're there as professional. Mm -hmm. Add, adding your your experience and your your love and support for the new mm -hmm. one. My experience with a doula was the baby's sleeping right now and the mom is sleeping now. I need some sleep and now we can sleep because I know that there's a doula at home with us and in case there is anything that needs to happen that's there for us and even to heat up some food for us, which was yeah. very nice. Anything. anything. I don't mm -hmm. want to say that the, the doula is there to uh, you know, to make our food and, and fold laundry, but they are there for the well-roundedness uh, uh, of support for both parents, not just yeah, them. totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the transition from person to parent, and I think that's very important because, from my own experience, and from the experience I learned from other dads going through it, that change of identity. That's what leads to postpartum depression. That what leads to, um, I can't even look at my baby right now, especially with dads when, okay, they're a dad now, but it's all about the mom. And now they're in a conflict, emotional conflict of what do I need to do now? Um, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I, I don't belong here. 
kind of thing. Now, how does a doula help out a, a new dad going through that confusing time? Yeah, so I, and I think it's a really important thing to note, and I know something you focused a lot on of that this transition is huge for dads too, and we really do focus on it for moms. I think a lot of why that is is because the physical process happens to the birthing parent primarily. The non-birthing parent or the dad role will usually be kind of in a lot of ways culturally seen as a bystander. And I think that's a really difficult place to be because you're not a bystander. You ideally would be an active participant. Um, however, because of what we talked about with very little experience or confidence with a baby, very little experience or knowledge or confidence about the whole process, the whole transition. Um, I think that parents in general, but especially a parent who's filling the non-birthing parent role or, or dad traditionally is kind of, kind of that outlier, kind of a bystander. And I think bringing them in and helping it be their story too, yeah. helping them feel like they know what their, what the potentials are, what the possibilities are, where they fit in is really crucial and helping them develop some actual skills, I think is also really essential. If a dad has never held a newborn, Let's say you're lucky enough that as the non-birthing parent, you've held a baby at all, because a lot happened. The baby you've held is probably four or five months old, really sturdy, not like a newborn at all. How do I hold this being, this person who I'm now in charge of? It's a great responsibility. And, and it comes with a lot of feelings, I think, that some of the ones that I see over and over can be a feeling of fear of inferiority of not knowing enough, not doing well enough. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times the response to those feelings of not being competent is to pull away. And so I think a skilled support person can, instead of somebody pulling away, can empower somebody and help them find their path to really engage, to feel confident, to feel knowledgeable, and to feel safe to ask questions, to not be perfect, yeah. to fumble with it, and to, you know, kind of find their path without all of those hard feelings, or at least with a space for those hard feelings where, yes, you don't feel confident to start, you feel really scared. But when you say, I don't know how to hold a baby, you know that the response is going to be like, yeah, that's really common. Let me show you some different ways right. rather than you don't know how to hold a baby, <laughs> right. yeah. Um, yeah. which really just creates shame. So kind of taking the shame out of that experience and really helping a family traverse that path, that transition and giving a lot of space for it. For it's okay if you don't know how you're going to parent. It's okay if you don't know what kind of person you're going to be, what kind of parent you're going to be. Probably that's going to change and shift as I know you know, like <laughs> yeah. the notions we come into it usually don't last forever. There's a, definitely a cycle of emotions that you go through as a parent. And as your kids start to make sounds, start to smile, start to move, start to get notice their surroundings, start to notice you as a parent. I think that's very important that you brought up the fact that when the baby's there, first of all, they don't know how to hold the baby. Even a new mom could not know how to hold baby because they never experienced that as well. Mm -hmm. From the from the start of the 
baby being born, what do we do now? And I talk to dads in my group sometimes saying, well, you don't know what to do. Do you have a doula? Do you have someone else to talk about? Well, we have our mom, we have the nurses, but what about someone who's in between that can help you, mm-hmm. that can support you? Right. Uh, I think that's that's very important and, and not feeling shameful because it is entirely new, very important experience. And a lot of those feelings, not just the immediate feelings, but the overwhelming feelings of the identity really fall upon their shoulders. Mm-hmm. And they want this immediate reaction of like, don't you see me? I'm your dad. And they don't get it. And I tell them, well, there's the fourth trimester theory that it's for another three months. It's really going to be a lot about the mom, but continue to be the dad. You're, you're the dad. Right. Continue to be the partner. You'll get to smile. You know, just change the diapers, do whatever you need to do to be the dad and be the supportive husband uh, or partner. Do you find that, have you been a doula just with, with home birth? Because you work with home birth a lot. Or do you, have you also been a doula in a hospital as well? Uh, yeah, I've attended hundreds of hospital births, hundreds of home births. And do you find so, a difference? Uh, yeah, there's there's lots of differences. Um, but the differences are not so concrete. There's not one line like this side home, this side hospital, like left mm. side home, left, right side hospital. The difference is not so delineated, but there there can be differences. However, there can also be a lot of similarities. I don't think there's a necessarily overall better place for somebody to give birth. I think the best place is where they feel comfortable. So overall, making sure that you're able to feel like you can be comfortable in that birth space that the practitioners or people who you trust and have a rapport with mm-hmm. that you're comfortable with their from their policies their procedures things like that allow people to have a comfortable experience whether they're at home in their own familiar environment or whether they're in a hospital in um in that medical environment so i think both can be really great they both have you know, advantages or disadvantages, but that's going to change based on the person. And I I don't think there's like, this is the best way. It's just, what's the right way for you? The right way for you, the right way, typically for the the pregnant person. Well, to some extent, but really for the couple as a whole, although the, the pregnant person is going to be the one who has ultimately to be receiving the medical care. And Mm. so I do think like the buck kind of stops with them as far as who should be able to make that decision? It should yeah. be the person receiving the care. But both people ideally um, are going to be comfortable and ideally really participatory in the experience. You know what you were saying like about, oh, I, I'm waiting for the smiles, for the engagement, which yeah. I think is a perspective that many dads share. Like, oh, they don't seem to know who I am or, or all these things. And I often will say, well, you have to give before you get in this situation. You have to be a participant before you get all the benefits. Just just wait. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That baby is going to be like smiling and laughing and cooing at you before you know it. But that will only happen if you put in the time and the energy. And so I think that has to start prenatally with ideally with being a supportive partner, being an active participant in care, Mm -hmm. instead of having this kind of traditional gender divide, I think having an active role is really a great way to start parenthood because then you know how things work because you helped select them like nursery items or whatever it is. 
you know where things are because you helped organize them and put them right. away because you guys did it together. You're familiar. And I think that familiarity, it's only earned by the effort. Right. That's a good point. A lot of that has to do with preparation. Mm-hmm. I've, I've talked to that. I've met people where they say, well, it's just, she's pregnant. She just needs to do what she needs to do. And then we'll have the baby and then I'll be a dad. And I'm not exaggerating. My wife is about to give birth uh, in a couple of days. What should I do? It's kind of too late to ask those questions. You've had mm-hmm. nine to 10 months of thinking about this stuff. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think a lot of that has to do with, could be them as, as a person that they've just never been this way before and they don't know how to handle big responsibilities. Could also have been education given to them without, without them doing their own research without them being with the parent going or the, their, their partner going to a childbirth class or, or meeting with their OB or midwife. As soon as you know that your partner's pregnant, that's the time to start preparing. That's the time to start being a partner in this whole situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think ultimately it's going to be uncomfortable, but it's going to be uncomfortable whether you start that prenatally yeah. or with the new baby there. So you might as well start get past the uncomfortable new subject, new topic before you have a baby waking you up in the night, before you have a little person to figure out and care for, because the discomfort is going to come. It's, it's not familiar. It's brand new. Right. Yeah. It's not normal at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's a totally abnormal experience compared to everything else you've ever been through when you're having your first baby. And, you know, I don't like when dad's or or non-birthing parent any non-birthing parent says we are pregnant because pregnant is a physical state the pregnant person is pregnant but we are having a baby right is absolutely something that i think more people need to embrace you know you're in this together in that way of you're going to have this baby together whatever that relationship looks like whatever whatever it is, whatever it becomes, um, you're in it together. And I do think like being involved and being brave, I do think it takes a lot of bravery to, you know, learn new things, to read some books, to get in new subjects, especially because for dads in particular, our culture says this is women's stuff. And, and that's a nice way to put it. There are a lot of rude ways that that's put, you know, this is really not seen traditionally as masculine domain, which is a real shame because children need these examples of positive masculinity, of involved fatherhood, of, you know, not feeling like relegated to diaper duty and nothing else, but of being an active participant in caring for and nurturing who this person's going to be and who they become. I think when we expand that role, it only really helps everyone involved, especially the children or the child and especially the dad. Yeah. If you become a dad, if you say that you can, okay, I'm going to become a dad when the baby starts reacting to me. No, you're a dad. Even before, as soon as I felt, as soon as I heard, I felt the baby kick in the womb, like, okay, I'm definitely, I'm a dad now. You know, right. the sooner you feel like you're going to become a dad and support a partner, the better you're prepared when the baby's born. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of people speaking about that really helps create that change of, you know, I'll get involved later when they're sturdier, when they smile, when they engage, when they're awake more, whatever it is that people say or think. I think if they recognize that there's opportunities well before that, and then you're creating a stage for a true partnership with your co-parent, you know, you're, you're really able to parent together. You're really able to do this together, to make decisions together. And I think it's such a strong place to go into it. It's also such a strong role to an example to set for other people, Mm -hmm. because it is still, I think, considered kind of fringe to be you know, excited about it before the baby is born to be like engaged or to be excited about the things that you're navigating of nursery planning of how to prepare for a baby of meeting healthcare providers, picking a pediatrician. But I think when we see dads involved with that and we see the non-birthing parents involved with that on a greater picture, then we're only going to have better family unit and a lot more presence. A lot more presence. Yeah, sure. I, that's interesting they say it's still on the fringe because I, I could definitely see that how dads or dads to be put limits on themselves or I'm not going to do that or we're, well, I'm not going to do that or she can do that by herself. Well, that's mm-hmm. you're not being fully present as a dad, but there are many, many thousands of dads who are present and, yeah. and who do the best they can. Totally. And I do think, um, and I do think there are so many dads who are doing the best they can and who even who are following into this or falling into this kind of more gendered role of I get involved later. It's not my decision. You choose. I don't know anything about that. I don't think that makes to, to take that kind of path when it's so well laid out for us culturally. I don't think that makes somebody insufficient as a dad at all. I think it, I think honestly, that's what our culture views as normal. Right. Um, I think you can rewrite what's normal in that way. I don't think to go with that is a critique or a negative thing for anybody. I think it's just seen as the way it is. Um, But examples of people who are more present, who are more engaged and involved, I think really allow other men, other supporters to really step in fully into that role in a kind of expanded way, kind of a more modern way. Now that we're in the 21st century, but even in the last couple of decades, dads, uh, I guess, ownership of their position as a dad is becoming stronger and stronger. They are becoming more involved and more involved. Totally. And I see that in the in my my new dad's place group, and and I think that's an amazing thing mm-hmm. that people are not getting so stuck on the old school routines of mm-hmm. like the hands off and machoism. Right, right. It's not about the ego. It's 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 not really about you anymore. Right. How did you find yourself being a doula? So when I was nine years old, I thought that I wanted to be a baby doctor or a midwife or something like that. And as I grew and and aged, and when I was a teenager, 
I found that being a real supporter, a real presence for somebody was something that I felt strong in and that I really enjoyed being able to do for someone. Um, So when I was getting to be old enough to start like picking a career, picking a path, um, I felt really aimless, really unguided. But my experience was with babies and with children. I taught in Hebrew school. I had done a ton of volunteering with children. I'd um, done a lot of babysitting, a lot of nannying, a lot of caretaking. And so those were the things that I was already familiar with, already skilled with. Um, And actually a therapist that I was seeing at the time for some grief that I was going through kind of unrelated introduced me to the idea of a doula because one of the things I was discussing and working with her on was I don't really know what my path looks like. I don't know like what I do next, what I wanted, what I want to be when I grow up. And she introduced me to this concept of a doula and said it sounded a lot like kind of the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I loved that it was dynamic, that it had a component of education that my experience with babies and children and with kind of advice giving, with teaching, all was able to come together. I went to a doula training. I started that process and the certification process, and I found a mentor, and um, I kind of fell in love with it. And I definitely still love being a doula. I don't at this time really attend births. My focus is really families after the fact right now, especially in light of COVID, I don't feel comfortable being in and out of a hospital or birth setting. And then also being in a home, especially because my clients right now are having supportive professional and are limiting their family interaction to minimize risk. Me going back and forth from a hospital to people's homes seems honestly to me irresponsible. It's not something that's within my, um, comfort level or that I would think is a risk that I would feel comfortable taking. Um, So right now I'm solely focused on working with new families, but it still does have all of that, all of those pieces, a lot of education. I'm able to really have a dynamic role that changes as I've learned and grown as a professional. I've really started to focus greatly on sleep because sleep is such a cornerstone of life. It's something that a lot of people struggle with before having children mm-hmm. and they struggle with, with their children, with their babies. Um, and that is such a huge, huge importance. So helping a family get good sleep, helping to shape good sleep habits, good sleep hygiene is something I really enjoyed being able to do. And again, just, just really dynamic. I've also been able to really support people in person and remotely, especially with sleep is such a thing that can be done wonderfully remotely and that I really love doing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, sleep is very important. Even if you're not a parent, sleep is very important. and Huge. Huge Mm -hmm. important, yeah. And then having the baby who, who wakes up every two hours need to figure out how to manage that better. And do I wake up the baby because they need to get breastfed or bottle fed? Do I let them sleep? Do I need to sleep? Those are all very important questions and and issues that every new parent deals with. Sleep deprivation is a torture tactic. Yeah. You can torture somebody for information. The CIA has used sleep deprivation as a legitimate form of torture for information. Yeah. 
And while that feels like almost a little like funny, it also feels really scary, especially considering that so many people have sleep deprived babies because they're, because we're just not kind of knowledgeable of what a baby needs or really how to provide that for them, especially in regards to sleep. The relationship most people have with sleep is so complicated. It's difficult. You know, we kind of try to put it off. We try to catch up. We try to do whatever, bank extra sleep on the weekend, sleep less when you have a big project. And it's really overall kind of an unhealthy relationship that most people have with sleep even before we stay up too late binge watching a favorite show or what right or whatever and those really are unhealthy sleep relationships that is not something i say to like shame it it's just the truth yeah it is unhealthy to kind of rob ourselves from sleep to fit in other things but it is kind of how we feel we have to handle that and so having, yeah, having a big focus on sleep has become more and more important to me because I see the benefits of it. Um, and I see also the risks of sleep deprivation, both for parents, for support professionals, and especially for children, for babies who need so much sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they seem to be so hard to make them do it. Yeah. Like our, our girls, if they don't get like a good 12 hours, they're wrecked the next day. And it's every, every night we say, you need to get your sleep. Stop talking. You need to go to sleep. You need to go to sleep. You know how you are in the morning. They're a wreck and they're very sensitive mm-hmm. and, and, um, and delicate by certain things because they don't have enough sleep. Mm-hmm. We get it. At any age, we understand how important sleep is. And that's one of the great things about being a doula or having a doula is that you can get your sleep, like I mentioned before. You can get the new parent. Yeah. You can get your sleep because the doula is there to to make sure everything will be okay with the baby. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and how the baby sleeps. How the baby sleeps is also a big question. Do they sleep on their back? Do they sleep on the side? What if they roll over onto their face? All these are very important questions and issues that someone like a doula who's there, where you can just contact, what should I do? Or having a support group, what should I do when my baby sleeps like this? Yeah. So you had mentioned when you were seeing a therapist, and then the, your therapist kind of opened your eyes to this whole world, which was new to you, but really felt comfortable to you. What? How old were you around when that happened? Um, I think I was 19. You were 19. So were you going to school? Were you going to college at that time? Um, I was, yeah. yeah. Do you remember what you were studying in college? I was studying theater, actually. You were studying theater? Yeah, I did theater all through middle high school growing up. I did a ton of community theater and um, both at school and in the greater community. Yeah. And did you feel like when this whole opportunity kind of opened up to you and you felt right about going into the path that you took, how did you feel about, did you did you feel like you were giving up on this other path that you were on for a while? Um. In some ways, I guess, but that was just, that was the familiar path. It was Mm. something I really loved doing, um, but I knew and I know that that type of career is very demanding, very difficult, and is not always conducive to maybe as much stability, um, is also really highly competitive. And I didn't, I, I always kind of felt like I wanted to do something where I really made a difference. And I think you absolutely can make a difference as a performer. And I do think like someday maybe I'll do theater again or com- in the community or something. Yeah. I 
think that might be like far off in my future. It might never happen. It's okay if it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess there was some sort of loss, but overall I felt like I was really gaining a lot of kind of an ability to create more change to kind of improve things more. Yeah, that's beautiful. A lot of girls, or I know my girls and other girls, they like to pretend that they're mommy, they have their dolls. I know my first girl uh, would pretend to breastfeed her dolls because she's mm-hmm. mommy do it with, with the new baby or with, actually with herself, which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. But you're nine years old, so you're kind of, a, you're not a baby anymore. You're, you're in your later years of elementary school and you still felt like you wanted to be surrounded by babies. Yeah, I mean, babies are amazing. Babies are the best of people. They really are. You don't get more pure or more wonderful than a baby. They are limitless potential. They are sponges. They're really just amazing. Um, And so I always loved babies. And uh, But what first kind of planted the seed was this kind of really interesting book called The Midwife's Apprentice. It's like a paperback novel. It's, I think, probably a Newbery Award winner. I had this copy of it. It's a children's book. It's a fiction novel about sort of a folk midwife, if you will, kind of a lay midwife self-taught or maybe apprentice taught who uses like herbs. I don't know when the book is set, maybe in the 1600s. It was just this fantastic story. And it was really real and really, it was sad in some ways, but the midwife takes on this apprentice who's this kind of homeless girl, you know, it's, and it's set maybe the 1600s. Mm-hmm. So it isn't like a homeless teen or homeless preteen is yeah. as today is such a, all of society wants to get involved and help remedy that type of situation. Back then it was like, what are you good for? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she kind of takes her under her wing, really gives her an opportunity. And it, you know, there are ups and downs. Birth was not safe back then. Birth still for many people in many communities, there's a ton of disparity in childbirth. But back then, especially birth was very, very difficult, very not safe. Um, it was a primary way that women died in that period of time. Mm-hmm. And this midwife's apprentice kind of sees how difficult it is, leaves, and then ultimately is uh, kind of pulled back in. And I don't know what about the book was so entrancing to me. I think it was both the ability to like do something positive, to create change or to help people. And also that I knew even at nine that there's, that this is sacred, that, Hmm. that the process of being born is just such a process of potential, who this person is going to be, who these people are going to become as a family, just felt really special to me, even as a kid. I think that's a little atypical to like have, I don't know, such reverence for that, but I really just found it magical. And I honestly didn't think that midwives were a real thing. I thought this was like a vintage thing, Uh 1900, like, You know, it's like the 1990s, like that's not a thing anymore. Right. And it really was only when I became more of an adult that I even realized that that was actually for real still a thing. Yeah. Um, 
ultimately I don't want to be at this stage, um, a healthcare provider, because I find that you have to then focus on the healthcare. And I do prefer to focus on the support and the education. A lot of people marry them and are able to do both. I feel like I'm more effective when I'm able to solely focus on support and education and kind of more practical support. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. It's pretty profound for a nine-year-old to really glom on to this um, this otherworldly so strange <laughs> yeah you brought up a good point is that even today women could have a healthy pregnancy they could be healthy everything is going great and then what happens at birth something horrible happens you know it can yeah it can and what do you think from just from your knowledge and experience and and what you know what do you think because i always think about this healthy woman healthy baby, healthy pregnancy, everything's going by the, by the book, as it were. Mm -hmm. And then labor happens. We're in the 21st century. Everything is at our fingertips of, of, of medicine. Even uh, there's, there's pain relievers, painkillers. There are home births. Or, I mean, there's like, I think it's like 1% of people do home births. but A little more than that these days. A little more than that? Okay. What happens? And I saw the movie, The Business is Being Born, and I still have nightmares from that movie. And I know there's a series. But what do you feel happens? Can you give like a, just an overall theory? What happens at the birthing process? Well, a lot of things can happen. You know, I think we have this, The Business of Being Born did a lot of positive things for opening up a lot of people's eyes. But it also created a picture of a right and a wrong way to give birth. I would say very, very definitively right, uh, yeah. in that movie, it portrays hospital birth as bad as highly interventive um, and home birth as wholly good. I do not think it's so black and white. I would take a good hospital provider over a so-so home birth provider any exactly. day. And I've had three home births, but I would happily give birth in the hospital to have a competent provider over um, some midwives that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. Uh, who I just feel like are maybe not as skilled or adept as they should be. I think some of the things that have happened that are difficult are just that the birthing process is difficult. The physical process is difficult throughout history. And my own experience shows this usually to be true as well in modern times um, throughout history. Primarily people started having babies when they were quite young compared to today's standards it's harder on the body to have a baby later in life. It can be more strenuous. We also have the potential to have a more kind of sedentary experience. A lot of us have office jobs. We sit a lot. Um, we may not be as fit. We may, you know, not be as equipped mm. for the birth process. We also have allowed more people to have babies, which is a wonderful thing. Assisted reproduction has made it possible for so many people to have children who maybe wouldn't have. Right. We're creating a lot more possibility, but we're also creating, uh, or we're also seeing that even though we can control so much, so much of the birth process is not something we can control. I think going into the process with an open mind is really important. I think knowing that all you can do is what you can do. And then you have to surrender to a certain extent in what your, how your process unfolds, what your body needs, what you want personally. 
Um, I do think we do tend to intervene a lot. I don't think that that's right or wrong. I think it can be beneficial. It can not be beneficial. It really depends on the individual circumstance. I will say though, some things that I think we are universally doing wrong um, or places we are going wrong is that I think in general, we focus very little on education, um, both for the birth process and for postpartum and with a newborn Mm -hmm. and with breastfeeding or feeding a baby. And I think that lack of information, even even a childbirth education class is going to have so many gaps in it. There's so many potential possibilities. And so I think that's a place that we could really stand to improve. And we also have a lot of disparity in healthcare where you can have drastically different outcomes for different socioeconomic people, different races. We have a maternity health crisis for a lot of minority people in the U.S. and for a lot of rural people in the U.S. where we see Black and Hispanic women um, and minority women, um, Indigenous people having much more likelihood of poor outcomes. Yeah. And where we see people in rural places having a lot less options, a lot um, more poor outcomes as well. And so there are a lot of places I think we can universally do better. I think more education, more support is really what we can change. Because the big unknown, the big uncontrolled is like, how is that birth process going to unfold? Right. What does that body and baby need? But if we give the support and the education, if we kind of level the playing field and cut out some of those disparities, you know, by improving healthcare, by creating healthcare that looks like the people who are being receiving the care, and by creating, you know, more nutrition, more support, more opportunities for fitness and things like that, I think we could greatly improve experiences and outcomes as well. Two main points you brought up as the normalizing the education and support. Mm-hmm. You need both. Yeah. These days are a little different because uh, because of COVID and, and social distancing, but mm-hmm. When you're having a problem, when there's an issue, and when the pregnant person can't voice what's happening, the other partner can't voice what's happening, or they don't know what to do, they're just listening to one other person, either it's DOB or the doctor, whoever's there. They need that other in-between person, mm-hmm. the midwife, uh, maybe a, not associated with the hospital, or a doula, to mm-hmm. give them their voice, to speak for them. And I think that's where the support comes in as well. I think it's a common misconception that a doula should advocate or speak for somebody. Right. Um, And I vehemently disagree. I think that it is not a doula's role. And I think it is disempowering to speak for somebody. Um, I think what you can do as a doula is help people find their own voice, which is overall going to help them much more because you're not going to be there when they're with their pediatrician and not sure about should they take these antibiotics or should they do the culture first or what should they do? You know, do they follow the pediatrician's nutritional advice or do they do what the book says? A good doula is Mm. going to help them speak for themselves. Mm. So a good doula is going to say to her clients or to their clients, 
Do you have any questions? Is there anything you're unsure about? Kind of lead the conversation. Well, kind of just create the opening for the conversation because it may be that they don't have any questions. Mm -hmm. It may be that the plan of what's happening right now is exactly what they need or what they want, whether that was what they planned prenatally or not. Mm -hmm. But by doing that, I think you're really creating a much better situation because ideally you're able to trust your care providers. Ideally, you're able to collaborate with care on your care providers. And if you're not, then those are not the right care providers for you. Mm -hmm. Good care providers want to provide collaborative care where the patient and themselves are on the same page or are able to be on the same page. Ultimately, the decisions have to be comfortable for both parties for the best outcomes to be possible. Um, And so as a doula in those circumstances, I think the role is really to help somebody find their own voice Mm. or to help support them in a changing plan. Maybe they don't have questions. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. This episode is sponsored by the Motorola Connect 40 Baby Monitor by Hubble. Where either you're in the next room or halfway across the world, this security camera provides you an instant broadcast of what's happening at home. It uses a secure and private Wi-Fi connection so you can easily check in on your baby. There's also a two-way talking feature. So let's say you're across the country on a job like me. I live in Florida and I travel to New York for work. I could literally say goodnight to my girls at home in bed because of the two-way talking feature. But there are also intuitive safety features like motion and temperature alerts. And get this, this is pretty cool. Dedicated parenting support on the Hubble app. Keep an eye on your child with ease with the Motorola Connect 40 Video Baby Monitor by Hubble. Just go to the description page of this episode and click the link to get 10% off your order with promo code NEWBABY. Now back to the show. When you were nine years old, that had to have been fifth grade? Probably, yeah, something like that. What was going on, if you don't mind me asking, in your world, your childhood then, when you were really connecting to, you know, the midwife's apprentice and babies? Did you always have that growing up? Did you have that, like I mentioned, with my, my kids when they're young, they went to I have think that? I did. I was yeah. really into, you know, baby dolls. I was really into, like, babies in the neighborhood, mm. friends who had babies. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't, like, one pivotal person or big memory of, like, somebody who was having a baby. I, I don't think I knew much at that age. This book was probably my first real understanding of, like, what the birth process is like. Yeah. It describes childbirth and it describes it not in like a beautiful flowery way. It describes it being very messy and very, you know, kind of gory and, and which in the 1600s, like birth was a thing, like birth was a scary, scary thing at that time. And the book does present it as a very scary thing because at, at that juncture, it really was a common way for people to die. But It also was just such a point of transformation. And I don't know what it was about it that was so captivating to me. I don't think I had any family or really close friends who were having babies at that particular point in time, although there were, um, you know, there were babies always in my world. I 
I think I just ha always had it there. I was like the oldest and you were the oldest. Mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, I still am the oldest. You don't usually get demoted. <laughs> so what are the, what's the age difference between and how many siblings do you have? I just have one sibling and she is um, just under three years younger than me. So I don't really, really remember her babyhood or anything, but I definitely kind of naturally gravitated to that like leader caregiver role. Although yeah. my sister and I had a very like tumultuous relationship in different years where I wasn't always like, where we didn't always like align or we butted yeah. heads. Um, so I wasn't like this nurturing sibling through and through, not a golden child by any means, yeah. but I definitely did have this kind of soft spot for babies, for dolls, like <laughs> all of it. Mm -hmm. And I do remember being 11 and being old enough to officially babysit and it being like the thing. Mm -hmm. I think really? I also read a lot of Babysitter's Club around this period yeah, of time. Right, so that definitely. was definitely a thing. The Babysitter's yeah. Club launch on Netflix was um, was like a coronavirus gift to my soul. <laughs> and I'm sure you love the Adventures in Babysitting movie. Mm -hmm. every, every every kid liked the Adventures in Babysitting. Yeah. Yeah. I never babysat. My sister is six years older. Sometimes I'd go with her to babysat. Sometimes she babysat my friends. I held babies growing up. I always thought they, were, thought they were fascinating. But the first time I ever really held a newborn were mine. Mm -hmm. First time I ever changed a diaper were my kids. Right. What do you feel like brought you to connect to babies? Well, I think it was just the natural after school job. You know, mm -hmm. you can be a babysitter at 11. You can't go work at like a grocery store at 11. And then I really enjoyed it. And mm -hmm. I think that led to me being, you know, recommended or referred. I had a number of like standing babysitting jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the things I really liked about it was that it was something that I had a lot more responsibility than I had friends who would like mow lawns or like do whatever. Yeah. And not that those jobs aren't also important, but it is more responsibility to be a caregiver. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely like a sense of pride in that. And I also really enjoyed it. You know, it's an accomplishment to like get a child to eat veggies who usually doesn't or to help a kid finish their homework before their mom gets home and see her relief. Um, it just felt rewarding in those kinds of ways to like get a baby to sleep or to like snuggle up with a baby. It was just a great, I yeah. think like just a great job. I just loved it. Did you like doing homework when you were a kid or you just wanted to get the other kids to do their homework? I think I like doing some homework, yeah. but I don't think I like doing all homework. I, I think everybody has their subjects. Yeah. Helping a little kid with their homework when you're a teenager, especially, and your homework is like super boring and super involved, um, you know, complex math, helping them with like their coloring sheets and stuff is fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And this is the part of the episode where I ask my daughters, aged four and six, what normal means to them. Dory, what does normal mean to you? Normal. Normal means normal? Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Um, fireworks are, um, are loud for my ears, so I wear headphones. Queenie. What does normal mean to you? 
Normal means to me, um, like, wait, Daddy? Yeah. Um, I want to do something like, what does family mean to me? Well, I'm asking the word normal. Is okay, it? well, what normal means to me is like when somebody is doing something and it's normal to do something that they do that they mostly do every day. That's awesome. Thank you. And back to the show. This is, I think this is very important that we're going to talk about this, and, and I'd love to hear your side of this. Normalizing the body, when, especially when you're an adult and when you're a parent, to not call your body parts different names, like not give them nicknames, and to be respectful of the body is just another body part. How do you feel and have you run to experience with parents when they're kind of they kind of they're shy about that they're hesitant to teach their kids that their kids are very giggly about that or they just use the word privates or they don't even know what it is or they don't know that their mommy has a different body part than their daddy or a baby is not in their belly a baby's in their uterus have you run into these situations with parents right yeah absolutely and i think you know we have to be age appropriate in our explanations, but using correct terminology is huge. There's a lot of information and research that supports that correct terminology increases safety. It increases competency. So safety in that if you call little girls parts, we're talking about vulva at this point usually, um, but a lot of people will say vagina. Vagina is only the inside bits. Vulva is like the whole shebang. Right. So if we call a little girl's vulva a cupcake or a cookie or yeah. like a Tootsie Roll, whatever kind of weird name. It could demean it. It also sexualize at the same time. Right. It allows for it to be more sexualized, mm. first of all, by creating shame and confusion. Right. Wait, but is this a cupcake or is this a cupcake? Because I thought a cupcake was something you get at a birthday party. Right. And something you share with friends, but you're telling me a cupcake is the thing in my pants. Right. It's very confusing. Um, it also decreases familiarity with their own body. If you give a kid specific body parts and names and, you know, they will use their own little nicknames. My children are from six and a half to almost 11. And like my boys have like, they have, um, overtake the word balls instead of like scrotum mm. or testicles. And I think at a certain point you have to go with where they're at, but them yeah. understanding the names of those words decreases potential shame. It increases familiarity and it leaves the door open for the future talks that are going to be really important. So right. when you talk to a little kid about where the baby is or what they're going to come out of, you can be vague to a point. I don't think necessarily you have to give a whole anatomy lesson when somebody says, how is the baby made? Right. I think you can be vague, but I think when they have questions, we need to answer them truthfully and honestly, and we need to answer what they've asked. Right. Are they asking how exactly does a baby come out of a body or are they asking how a baby is made or are they asking where the baby lives inside the body? Because yeah. you're going to give a different answer for all of those. But I do think it's important. I think it increases um, comfort with our own bodies. Mm -hmm. 
definitely true and it's very important there's a disparity as well as, as i've realized when a dad has a boy i don't have boys i have two girls but when a dad has mm-hmm. a boy they're more comfortable talking to their boy about their their parts their body parts mm-hmm. but dads become uncomfortable if they have a girl that they don't know what to do with a girl right how should i talk to my girl and i'm thinking well just, just be a dad it's just you know it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl just, just be the best dad you can be but when they get to like the body parts of a girl they don't know how to talk to them they don't know what to say and they leave it up to the mother so i think for a dad to talk to a girl about their parts is really really important because otherwise her first experiences of a man talking about her parts is probably going to be sexual right or medical and it's not going to be familiar and it's not going to be comfortable and it's not going to allow her to view that conversation as something safe um and so i think the best way to approach it is just really matter of factly and nonchalantly like yeah we have different parts you have a vulva that's what your parts are called my parts are called a penis and you could potentially show them in like they make books that are age appropriate for children that show a naked body mm-hmm. that are not pornographic or adult they're drawn usually they're but they're anatomically correct and you can say here in this book here's a picture of a penis which is the part i have and a vulva which is the part you have and that really normalizes it yeah and you can and then they might say they might have more questions they might not the beautiful thing about talking about all these big subjects with kids that i've really learned yeah is that my full stop is i will answer exactly what you've asked and that i won't volunteer more information because you will ask for it when you're ready right unless i think there's a health or a safety concern my children are old enough for like lots of computer use my boys both love to game so we have talked in general terms about like what's out there why internet safety is a thing and i've had to bring up those discussions but with a young child just answer what they've asked if they ask like well why do you have a penis while different people have different parts I have a penis um because I am a boy and that's how my body works. And then they might ask, well what does it do? Well, most of the time my penis allows me to go to the bathroom and that's how I pee. You don't have to yeah. get into everything with a 3-year-old because really what she's asking is why do you have that? Right. Right. And then if she asks more, well does it do something else? Then you may need to go deeper with that explanation. A 3-year-old typically is not going to ask more. You've answered right. the question. Right. It's not a big deal. She's like, "Oh. Okay. Do you have a butt?" The right. next question is probably going to be something like, "Do you have a butt too?" Right. Yeah, we all have butts. Yeah. And then they're going to laugh and make a fart joke. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, and it's just such a chill, easy way to approach it. Is right. just just answer what they ask. If you're embarrassed, say, "You know, I don't really know how to answer that. Let me think for a minute." Yeah. Or let me have a glass of water and I'll be right back. Right. <laughs> Our children just know that as a adult as a parent that we know everything and we're there to provide them in the information. And if we don't provide them the proper information limited to like like you said to their age appropriate information, if we belittle the information or if we make it a childlike answer, that's all they're going to know. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Then, then they have to figure it out on their own. And we don't want that to happen. Right. Right. And, you know, you can create, like, there are places where you have to give more information, of course. Something I've naturally, like, has come up over and over is something like consent. And Mm. I think that's a hugely important, I have two boys and then a girl. I think it's incredibly important that all my children are given these stories and given these kind of examples. And so when you make naming parts normal thing you're able to talk about big topics as they come up right like that's your body nobody gets to touch your body right except you that's your body i help you clean your body when you're little Mm -hmm. but once you're old enough you clean your body you know if something's wrong with your body we go to a doctor to talk to them about it and to ask them for help but you are the one who is in control of your body. You know, that's your penis. You don't share that. Like that's yours. Nobody else touches that. And when you've given the proper terms, then you're able to teach all these things and to have it just be like a normal conversation, like that you'd have in the car on the way home from school. Right. Right. Exactly. Again, it's education and support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And you bring up consent. Even at the doctor's office, there should be consent. And totally. We experience this ourselves when they went for a checkup. They ask our girl, is it okay if I lift up your shirt mm-hmm. to check your uh, heartbeat? Is it okay if I could do this? Not just, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do it. Right. And I think that's extremely important to respect each other and to respect a, a child to ask for consent first. Right. Absolutely. I think it's super important, even with like a shot or anything like a dentist checkup or anything, they're essential. I think you have to teach like, okay, we have to do it, but you tell me when you're ready. Do you need a minute? Yeah. And I think when we model those things, we're kind of shaping the way that our children are going to interact in, in many other subjects. And it definitely is about support and about you know, kind of being in charge of your own self. And it's such a good thing because then ultimately they will say, okay, I'm ready. Right. Yeah. What a great way to feel at the dentist. Right. Or anywhere. Or anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, it's very important and it's very crucial. And And I think that we're kind of behind the fact that we're talking about it. We shouldn't even be talking about it because it should just be a normal thing about consent. Mm -hmm. It should just be right. a normal thing. Totally. It should just be, you're a medical professional. You should know to ask for consent. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And they don't always. I have been to pediatricians who, who don't ask as much. Mm-hmm. And so I, as the parent, then interject. And I say, the doctor looks like they're going to listen to your heart. Are you ready? That's very important. And by modeling that to my child, I'm both saying that their opinion, their readiness is important, their consent is important. I'm also modeling, I think, to the doctor, the care provider, a nurse, whoever, that the child's opinion and readiness is important. It matters. And maybe they go on and they incorporate that with their next patient. Maybe Mm -hmm. later that afternoon, they have a kid who looks really reluctant and they ask, hey, you tell me when you're ready. Um, So I think by doing just these small things, we're able to, in a very friendly way, in a very approachable way, create 
kind of the the world we want to live in where we don't have to ask if this is normal. That's right. That's very beautiful. Very important. Thank you so much for sharing that. I have one more question and this has been, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. There is so much more to talk about and perhaps we'll come back again. The question I ask everybody at the end of an episode is what does normal mean to you? I think normal mostly means to me like if something's typical or conventional, but I also think that normal should mean more than just what's expected. It should mean what's healthy, what's right. I think the right thing should be the normal thing. So I guess that's my definition that exists is that I think normal means conventional or typical, but what I think should be normal is what's healthy, what's right. What's healthy and what's right. That's great. That's a great answer. Cheryl, thank you so much for your time and for your just educating us on everything that you do, what your normal is and how you found your normal and just a beautiful aura of of love and support for babies, for for new parents, for that whole world. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening will who have never even heard of any of this before. And you really, I hope, open up many people's minds and eyes to the support and the education that is out there. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. So that was a fascinating talk with Cheryl Kindred, right? I hope you enjoyed it. It was very informative and also a super fun talk. If you're a parent or soon to be, maybe you got some useful information out of it. Or if you're not a parent, maybe you can share this episode with a parent that you know. Thank you also to my girls who share their normal. If you'd like to comment on anything talked about in this episode or on other episodes, go ahead and please share on any of the social media links that are listed in the description page of the episode. Please also leave a review for the show on any of the podcasting platforms that you use. I'd really appreciate that. So this is the end of the year. That's all. Exhale. Okay, happy new year. Let's do this. 2020 is now. In hindsight, we are welcoming a new year, 2021. Let's all just take care of 2021 like it was a new baby. Let's just hold it carefully, protect the neck, and be kind with it. Do your best. Be safe. Wear a mask, hopefully for not too much longer. And thank you for listening. And Happy New Year!